Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought. Dialogue. Dialoguejournal.com. Dialogue. Dialogue journal. Dialogue. Dialogue. It's the 50th anniversary. Dialogue. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Morris Thurston, a member of the Dialogue Board of Directors. Today we're privileged to hear from Gary Bergera, editor of the recently published Diaries of Leonard J. Arrington, titled Confessions of a Mormon Historian. Most of you have some knowledge of the former church historian Leonard Arrington, whose term of office is sometimes called the Camelot Years, but I think you'll learn new insights from listening to this discussion. Gary left plenty of time for questions, so be sure to catch that part of the podcast. As you may have heard, beginning this year, Dialogue has opened up its archive and everything, even the most recent journal, is now online and freely accessible to anyone. However, we still depend on your generosity to keep Dialogue financially viable. Please visit our all-new website at dialoguejournal.com to check out what's new and, we hope, to make an online contribution. And thank you for your support. Now to our podcast featuring Gary Bergera, introduced by Don Thurston, speaking to a gathering of the Miller-Eccles Study Group in Orange County, California. Introduce our speaker tonight, Gary Bergera, who's the managing director of the Smith Pettit Foundation in Salt Lake City. He serves on the editorial boards of the Journal of Mormon History and the John Whitmer Historical Journal. He's also a former director of Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought. He grew up in Provo, attended BYU, and got a couple of degrees from BYU, uh, and served a mission to southern France. He's a much-published author and editor of a number of books related to Mormonism. Among those that he's authored is a book he wrote called The Conflict in the Quorum, Orson Pratt, Joseph Smith, and Brigham Young. He also co-wrote with his spouse, Ron Prittis, who is here tonight and is the, let's see, your position with Signature, you're the managing editor at Signature Books for many years, and we've known Ron and just, he's a great friend. The two of them wrote together Brigham Young University, A House of Faith. He's also written a number of other articles, essays, which have been published in a number of journals. He has edited the autobiography of B.H. Roberts and a collection of poetry, letters, and artwork in a book called On Desert Trails. And his most recent work is the two-volume collection of the diaries of Leonard Arrington called Confessions of a Mormon Historian. And that's what he's going to be speaking to us about tonight. So I'd like to turn the time now over to Gary Bergera. Thanks. It's, um, you probably hear this from every speaker, but it really, really is uh, an honor and a privilege to, to, to stand in front of this group. I've, growing up, and living in Utah, one hears rumors of a Miller Eccles group. <laughs> but it is satisfying to find out that it really does exist. <laughs> so thank you very much for the invitation. In thinking about what might be of interest to most of you tonight regarding the publication of the Diaries of Leonard Arrington, 
I decided that rather than attempt to summarize the contents of the diaries, I instead would provide some background into the origins of the project. Discussions with the Arrington family is represented by Susan Arrington Madsen, the youngest child and only daughter of Leonard and Grace Arrington, regarding the publication of the diaries began in late 2011. These followed an initial outreach by longtime Arrington family friend, Lance Owens. I think the principal goal of these discussions was to gain a better understanding of each party's hopes and expectations. A formal contract between the Smith Pettit Foundation, where I'm employed as managing director, and the Arrington Family Trust was signed on January 10, 2012. At that point, work on preparing the diaries for publication began in earnest. While Arrington maintained diaries prior to late 1971, I decided to focus on those years I believed would be of greatest interest to the majority of readers. Thus, the published version of the diaries begins shortly before Arrington's appointment as LDS church historian, which occurred in early 1972, continues through his directorship of the LDS Church History Division and of the Joseph Fielding Smith Institute for LDS Church History, and concludes with the years of his retirement. <clears throat> Though he kept diaries before his appointment as church historian, not until that time did Arrington approach the task of documenting his life with the focus and self-awareness that characterized the undertaking thereafter. Sometime between 1972 and February 1974, Arrington began to assemble in letter-sized loose-leaf binders a series of scrapbooks he labeled diary. These scrapbooks included, among other items, copies of diary entries he had recorded previously. After 1981, Arrington abandoned the scrapbooks, but continued to keep a diary as loose letter-size sheets. Arrington's papers were acquired by the library at Utah State University in stages, beginning in 1982 and continuing until after Arrington's death in early 1999. As is common practice, the library's special collections staff disassembled the 24 scrapbooks covering the period from birth through 1981 and placed the pages in archival folders and boxes. These diaries today comprise boxes 21 <coughs> to 35 of Arrington's papers. Boxes 36 through 52 contain the remainder of Arrington's diary from 1982 on. On January 7, 1959, Arrington began to maintain with greater regularity a diary, usually typed. From 1959 to November 1971, Arrington's diary reads mostly like an appointment calendar with the occasional brief annotation or note to self. However, when it became clear in late 1971 that Arrington's career might take a significant term, he decided, prompted by son Carl, to document more fully major events in his life. Thereafter, through December 1981, Arrington's diary contains, in addition to Arrington's typed diary entries, an even greater variety of autobiographical materials, including, but not limited to, letters 
Copies of letters to and from Arrington, minutes of meetings of LDS Church Historical Department executives and managers, <coughs> internal reports generated by the Historical Department, brief excerpts from the diaries of some colleagues, copies of speeches, clippings from newspaper and magazine articles, obituaries, the printed programs of history conferences and similar meetings, local and regional LDS Church bulletins and announcements, public statements and press releases, theater, plays, musicals, operas, ballet, etc. programs, trip and vacation itineraries, airplane tickets, hotel and restaurant bills, restaurant menus, greeting cards, Christmas cards, birthday cards, miscellaneous memoranda, and scraps of printed and other material Arrington believed to be important. Arrington shift in how he maintained his diary beginning in late 1981, early 1982, seems to have been prompted by the gradual redefinition beginning in 1977 to 78, of his job from church historian to director of the church history division and his division's subsequent relocation, finalized in August 1982, from the church historical department in Salt Lake City to the newly created Joseph Fielding Smith Institute for Church History at Brigham Young University in Provo. Evidently, Arrington came to view his formal diary entries as of decreasing importance given his move away from church headquarters, his diminishing involvement in the daily grind of professional history making, and the approach of his retirement in 1987. As he grew older, and especially in retirement, Arrington recorded fewer and shorter diary entries. He continued to insert other material in his diary, but it appears that health, energy, and interest lagged. Also, since he no longer enjoyed secretarial support, what diary entries he did compose, he typically typed himself rather than dictated. What seems to be the last formal diary type entry is dated January 10, 1997, a little more than two years before Arrington's death. To an extent before 1997, but especially after, Arrington's regular letters to his three children functioned increasingly as the primary chronological narrative of his life though the focus of the letters was more personal than professional. Also beginning in the early 1980s, Arrington began making a backup photocopy of his diary. In August 1982, he made arrangements to give the original copy to the USU library, retaining the duplicate copy at his house. The making of a duplicate copy proved to be a fortuitous security measure when I discovered that entries for the period November 1982 to August 1983 were missing in the original but present in the duplicate. Arrington's diary, as with all autobiographical texts, is a construction of self. In Arrington's case, the author's self-awareness may be more intentional than in many other such efforts. Arrington appreciated the historical and political value of maintaining a diary and addressed readers accordingly. That said, Arrington as a diarist typically writes more as a historian seeking balance and understanding than as, say, an attorney, arguing a client's case regardless of the merits of the opponent's allegations. While Arrington is certain to record his version of events, he does not shy away from offering judgments of others as well as of himself. In fact, Arrington's occasional self-criticism serves as a tonic to help render more nuanced the reader's own judgments of Arrington especially. 
Arrington may be his own most articulate defender, but he is also his own most knowledgeable critic. His sometimes clinical self-awareness endows his diary with a heightened degree of honesty. It may be tempting to view Arrington as something of a jovial good old boy, an Idaho-born chicken rancher whose interests did not extend much beyond the soil and livestock of the American West. It was a persona Arrington himself cultivated. Yet in many ways, nothing could be farther from the truth. Arrington was, in every sense of the term, an intellectual engagé, more so than he often let on. He was a voracious Catholic reader whose interests ran the gamut. He enjoyed art and theater in almost all forms, appreciated music, especially Italian opera, kept abreast of current national and world affairs, was intensely curious and broad-minded. His religious, political, and social beliefs veered usually, but not always, toward the mainstream and occasionally liberal. His belief in the fundamental truth claims of his church, as he understood and interpreted them, was unwavering. He was suspicious of dogmatism and authoritarianism. He avoided making judgments, <coughs> but also held some strong opinions. He both, both celebrated and was leery of modernity. He was an incurable workaholic, could be optimistic to a fault and non-confrontational to his own detriment. His diaries reveal a man committed to, victimized by, and, and yet in important ways transcendent of his time and culture. During the early stages of preparing Arrington's diaries for publication, I made two decisions. First, I would not attempt a typographical facsimile reproduction, but rather a clean transcription of the diaries as I believe Arrington intended. This means that instead of tracking all changes to the, to the original text, I silently, without always alerting readers, made all of Arrington's own changes to the text of the diaries. This meant silently transferring to the transcription Arrington's own corrections. Second, I extracted all the entries labeled diary, or from context understood to be original diary entries, rather than reproduce the entire contents of the scrapbooks, theater programs, trip itineraries, newspaper and magazine clippings, etc. These clearly labeled diary entries, it seemed to me, comprised the actual diary and the supplementary material Arrington included did not. As the number of explicitly labeled diary entries began to dwindle, however, I incorporated into the diary what struck me as especially relevant excerpts from Arrington's letters to his children. <coughs> I acknowledge the subjective nature of this decision, but believe the inclusion of such material, selected judiciously, I hope, rounds out and completes both the diary and the narrative of Arrington's life. As soon as the decision to publish the diaries was reached and an electronic scan of the original diaries was made available in early 2012, independent historian Artisi Parshall prepared a preliminary transcription. Following Parshall's work, I proofed and then reproofed the transcription against the scans of the originals. Missing entries when they were discovered were supplied by either Susan Arrington Madsen or by the USU Library's Special Collections Department which I then transcribed, proofed, proofed a second time, and inserted where they belonged. In formatting the diaries for publication, I adopted a handful of editorial conventions that departed from the original text. I arranged the entries into chapters, 
titled the chapters, and provided chapter epigraphs. I standardized dates placed at the beginnings of each dated diary entry. I sometimes inserted bracketed text in an entry to facilitate comprehension. Otherwise, I placed all editorial intrusions in footnotes. I hope the editorial apparata will benefit the reader without detracting from Arrington's original creation. Regarding the identification of people cited in the diaries, I tried to annotate, using publicly available information, the men and women who appeared to be significant in Arrington's life. I did not attempt to identify people whom Arrington mentioned only in passing. Nor did I try to identify all of the major events in the person's life, only those that seemed most relevant and most useful in helping to place the person in the context of the diaries. The majority of errors and possibly inadequacies that exist in the annotations will probably be found in the identification of people. To any who may find the facts of his or her life or of the lives of his or her family members misstated or less than fully stated, I apologize in advance. In principle, I am opposed to the redaction or censorship of historical documents. However, while editing, editing Arrington's diaries for publication, I encountered a handful of entries that caused me to confront my opposition. I believe redaction risks incomplete history, that it com compromises both the historical enterprise and the search for historical truth. It not only deprives writers and readers of benefiting from as full a treatment of the topic under, under discussion as possible, it actually contributes to a distorted account of the past. In addition, redaction infantilizes readers. Those making redactions tell readers, in effect, that they are not to be trusted in using the materials being redacted, in interpreting the materials being redacted, and in arriving at their own conclusions regarding the redacted materials. Decisions about what we see, whatever the reason, treats readers as being unable to be trusted with the truth. While I remain committed in principle, to the above objections to redaction, I arrived at a handful of instances in the Arrington Diaries where I decided to redact the historical documents. The published edition of the diaries comprises three volumes, each totaling 800 to 900 pages. All told, I redacted the names of people in a total of 12 dated diary entries, two in volume one, three in volume two, and seven in volume three. When I began work on the diaries in 2012, I did not expect to redact any material. Thus, I did not formulate any policies beforehand regarding redaction. However, as I began to work my way through the diary, and especially as I started to annotate the text, I encountered some entries containing material regarding persons who I discovered were living, that I decided could be read as possibly problematic to those living individuals. Rather than attempt to create a broad, one-category-fits-all redaction, which seemed to me to be unworkable, I decided to consider each potential redaction on its own. Throughout the project, redaction remained a subjective undertaking, but as I made my way through the task of annotation, I became increasingly less uncomfortable with my admittedly subjective decisions. That said, I suspect that some readers will agree with my decisions and that other readers won't. The majority of the redactions seems to fall within the category we today might term 
Privacy concerns. They relate to matters involving divorce, excommunication, mental illness, sexual activity, etc. Perhaps the redaction-related question I most struggled with was that connected with the entry dated March 15, 1985. This redaction involved the identification of a living married couple who received their LDS temple-related second anointings and who, in the case of the wife, wrote a poem about the experience that was published in Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought. Throughout the editing process and into typesetting, the couple, to the best of my knowledge, had never publicly acknowledged receiving the second anointing, and the wife's poem was vague enough that I believed the majority of readers would never guess that her poem deals with the ordinance. So I had decided to redact the couple's names in the published version of the diaries. However, after typesetting, one of the proofers pointed out that the poem had been published under the author's real name in the compilation Sisters in Spirit. Subsequently, based on the author's own outing of herself as the author of the poem, I ultimately decided not to redact her and her husband's names. Entitling the publication of the diaries Confessions of a Mormon Historian, I drew some inspiration from Arrington himself. One of the possible titles he toyed with for his autobiography, published in 1998 as Adventures of a Church Historian, was Confessions. I also like and find it appropriate that the verb confess traces back to the Latin confessio, meaning to acknowledge, and may refer specifically to acknowledging one's faith or matters of one's faith. As Gary Wills points out in his brief biography of St. Augustine and his confessions, quote, the term that best discovers this range of meanings for confessio is testimony, end quote. Thus, and despite confessions corollary as admitting to transgressions, etc., I think confessions as testimony accurately represents the contents of the diaries. Supplementing the published edition of Arrington's diaries are a foreword by Susan Arrington Madsen, a biographical essay up to 1971 by Rebecca Bartholomew, a chronology of significant events compiled by Joseph Geisner and Levina Fielding Anderson, an epilogue by Thomas G. Alexander, and an Arrington bibliography prepared by Jeffrey Ogden Johnson. The published version of the, Arrington's, of the Arrington Diaries represents the combined efforts of many people in addition to myself. These include, but are not limited to, Artis Parshall, Susan Arrington Madsen, who proofed the entire annotated transcript several times, Becky Bartholomew, who adapted her several studies of Arrington into a standalone biographical introduction, Christine Rigby Arrington, Richard Jensen and Brian Buchanan, who each separately proofed the entire manuscript and caught more than a few errors, Levina Fielding Anderson and Joe Geisner, Tom Alexander, Jeff Johnson, Bradford Cole and members of the staff at Special Collections USU Library, Janie Fleet and members of the staff at Signature Books, including Ron Prittis, John Hatch, Devery Anderson, Keiko Jones, and designer Jason Francis. If you like the look of the published edition of the diaries, that's all Jason, and George D. Smith and the Smith Pettit Foundation, who gave me the time to work on the diaries. I would like to conclude with a few, hopefully, non-spoilerish readings from <laughs> Arrington's writings. The first is from his diary, entry dated December 12, 1976, and I think encapsulates the difficulties he found himself facing at LDS headquarters, his frustrations with his own inability as how best to respond and his temperament in such situations. Quote, 
My experience in working for the church for now almost five years suggests several comments. First, I find the church in most instances to be a beneficent employer. That is, the church will be compassionate with an employee in a manner that a private employer would not be. It will try to salvage a life, a situation, a deteriorating health, or social or family relationship. Second, the church, being led primarily by older people, will attempt to get by as cheaply as possible. <laughs> will pay less than competitive businesses pay, will grant smaller increases than private businesses will grant, will resist upgrading salary scales, will feel that the church should pay less than competitive salaries. The church will lag behind other businesses and institutions in introducing improvements in its salary scales, will make changes reluctantly and grudgingly. Third, in positions like mine, which are sensitive, the security is less than in a university, in the federal government, in private business. One feels more insecure because he is subject to arbitrary action by any member of the Quorum of the Twelve, and he sees every week examples of such arbitrary action. Fourth, there are administrative problems in dealing with the hierarchy. Some of these are the product of the particular personalities. Our own experience is somewhat as follows. We want to determine a matter of policy. We take it to Elder Joseph Anderson, who was the managing director of the Church Historical Department at that time. Elder Anderson does not make a decision. Almost never does he make a decision. He recommends we take that question to the advisors to the Twelve. The advisors almost never make a decision. They recommend we take it to the First Presidency. We do not receive answers on many of the questions we take to the First Presidency. The First Presidency wants to discuss it with the Twelve. It never gets on the agenda of the Twelve, or if it does make the agenda, they do not get to it. Or if they get to it, someone asks a question about it, which our advisors can't answer, so it is referred to them to get the answer. They subsequently ask us the question. We provide the answer. They go back with it to the Twelve. By that time, the Twelve have another question. We have had several of our proposals followed precisely this route, with no decision in a year or even two. This has happened on our proposal for a six-volume biography of Brigham Young, on our proposal to do a study of the operation of plural marriage, and on other types of this, uh, and on other matters of this type. This could be solved very easily if the Twelve would have one of us outside their council room during the discussion, prepared to give an answer to any question that might be asked. Fifth, we have, we have observed instances in which a member of the Twelve sounded off about our work without really knowing what we were trying to do or why, and without consulting us, our advisors, our managing director, and without them giving, and without giving them or us a chance to answer the charges. We have also experienced only one instance, as Stillworth Young's letter on the Edwin Woolley biography, in which we have been praised or appreciation expressed for any of our books, articles, or any other accomplishment. It is normal for an employee to expect occasional expressions of appreciation for his work, and we try to do this for our own employees. But with all the books we have published and articles, we have never had written or oral communications from Elder Anderson, our advisors, members of the Quorum of the Twelve, or the First Presidency about them. As if each is fearful of putting something in writing, which would later embarrass him. One almost feels that the bureaucracy and the hierarchy fail to use the gospel in their dealing with their own appointees, 
and instead rely on legalistic pronouncements and coercive administrative power. I have never seen a group of people so afraid to do something, so fearful of doing wrong, so terrorized by the possibility of vindictiveness. And this is a church." End quote. <laughs> the second, again from the diary, dated March 13, 1976, treats readers to Arrington's frankness and willingness to broach some of the more intimate aspects of his own life. Quote, I recall the first time I ever kissed a girl, and this was kind of a fluke. It was when I was home one summer from the university, and a woman in the neighborhood decided to put on a neighborhood play. I was invited to take part in the play as leading man, and my opposite was Verna Buse, an LDS girl who lived in our neighborhood, I think a year or two younger than me. As a part of the play, I had to kiss the heroine. I wondered about it, I wondered about this for several weeks and finally had a date with her and tried out a kiss. I had a few additional dates, but the play fell through and it was all for naught. <laughs> it is unbelievable for me to look back and realize what a bashful farm boy I was. Certainly it was not because I lacked sexual urges and feelings. I certainly had these and a considerable <coughs> curiosity about sex, but those were the days when there was not much that could be read and people did not talk much about it. I remember trying to find books in the library that might say something about the subject, but did not find much beyond the traditional birds and the bees pamphlets, which were written for junior high school students." End quote. The last two excerpts are from letter, uh, Arrington's letters to his children, and were written on dates after the period of time covered in the published diaries, and so do not appear in the published diaries. The first is the last letter Arrington ever wrote and is dated January 29, 1999. At the time, Arrington was in the hospital and dictated the following to his daughter, Susan. I think it summarizes well Arrington's orientation to life and interest in chronicling an accurate history. It reads, quote, Dear children, I got to thinking the other day, something that sounds strange, is that when I was looking after chickens, on the Twin Falls, Idaho farm, the chickens used to get lice, and I used to put on the roosts a liquid that seeps up from the roost and kills the lice. Apparently, in going through all this, I myself picked up lice. And I can remember lice in my hair and buying a little narrow comb. I could pick up any lice that was there. It helped me realize what a pretty bad health status we were in. We picked up tainted typhoid fever. In fact, I had it at least twice both times from tainted ditch water, which we drank all year. It had come from where cows had sloshed, human beings had defecated, and birds had left their droppings. Susie wants to know why I didn't get cholera, but none of us did. And we were lucky not to get tuberculosis like Brigham Young's mother and first wife. But of course we did get, in succession, mumps, whooping cough, scarlet fever, diphtheria, measles, both red and German, and the flu. Something else I thought of in those days was our annual bee honeycomb harvest. In the process, several of us would get stung by bees and go around for two or three days with swollen eyes and or neck. My grandpa, Leroy Arrington, always had several hives of bees. One year, my father planted alfalfa, not clover, in the field, and he was told that in order to pollinate the alfalfa seed as it came along, so he acquired several beehives. I like them too, because bees used to eat my favorite hollyhock in the front yard. Anyway, 
Lots of excitement from honey, honeycomb, and getting acquainted with bees. It's very difficult to explain to young people today in the LDS Church that they do not have the same opportunities for self-expression that they had when I was a boy. My first talk was at a state conference on tithing when I was nine years old. When I was 12, I gave several. One on Brigham Young, one on the Boy Scouts, and at least two others, one on controlling your temper. Every year, from then on, from age 13, more talks. Age 14, more talks. Age 15, more talks. And I might say that, different from many young people today, I always wrote out my talk and memorized it. So whenever I gave a talk, it sounded as though I was just talking or explaining. I think I did, I did not give a talk that wasn't memorized until I went off to college, and then only because I was part of a debate team. I'm grateful to Susie for this dictation. One of these days, I hope to type my own. Love, Dad. End quote. The second reading is dated a year earlier, February 11, 1998. I believe it best encapsulates Arrington, Arrington's tendency to nostalgia, as well as his hopeful view of the larger world. It reads, quote, Sometimes my work is such that I take my walk at night up and down 22nd East Street, and sometimes up 22nd and down to Oneida Street, and up to 21st South, and then back home on 22nd East. The windows in the houses glow, as do the street lights, and the row of lights we erected a couple of years ago on every other house next to the street. I see the windows shivering with gold and amber, and our yard lights strong and beautiful assertions of the light. As I crush the thick caked snow under my shoes, I do not wear boots. I think of my children and grandchildren. Good thoughts, beautiful, satisfying thoughts. You are all like lights, lights to my mind, to my soul, to my life. An article in a magazine reminds us of Alfred Hitchcock's foreign correspondent, the end of which is a scene in which the radio station goes out during the blitz and Joel McRae calls into the mic, Hello, America, hang on to your lights. They're the only lights left in the world. John Milton died blind, out of the light. A last writing was, quote, When I consider how my light is spent, end quote. Maybe he meant life. Goethe's reported last words were, More light. Do you remember the song we used to sing as children? This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. You did. Have you ridden in an airplane at night and noticed how much dark space there is between the necklaces of light? Sometimes I hate to end my walk when I'm traveling late at night. Many lights went out, but there was always in my mind the lights that come from you." End quote. For me, a few takeaways after having experienced the diaries are, first, the writing of history depends on primary sources. Arrington knew and appreciated that any attempt at recreating the intellectual history of the LDS Church during the last third of the 20th century needs access to first-person narratives. Thus, he not only produced one of the seminal documents needed for such a history, he made certain that it would be accessible to researchers and readers by placing it in a public repository. Second, the obstacles Arrington and his colleagues in the History Division of the LDS Church Historical Department faced in attempting to, to fulfill their callings to produce good scholarly history during the 1970s were more numerous and greater than, I believe, many people today assume was the case. 
it is sometimes asserted that Arrington failed to cultivate sufficiently good relations with his ecclesiastical superiors, or was naive in failing to understand the complex operations of the church's bureaucracy. In fact, Arrington was aggressively prevented from pursuing his assignment from the First Presidency by high-ranking church leaders who refused to support Arrington's appointment and by certain church bureaucrats who spied on Arrington and misrepresented the work of the History Division. Ironically, the foundation Arrington and his colleagues laid 40 years ago has today made possible the many important contributions to scholarship of the Joseph Smith Papers Project and the LDS Church Historians Press. Third, and on a more personal note, the possession of a great intellect does not guarantee that one will never make mistakes. For all of Arrington's genius, he was not above making misjudgments and missteps. He underestimated the toll his workaholism took on his wife, Grace. He misjudged the ability of his colleagues to process developments regarding the, the deterioration of the, his, the history division at the hands of church bureaucrats. He could be overly optimistic, and he sometimes made important personal decisions more on the basis of emotions than on reasoned thinking. As Arrington himself liked to say, we may not agree with every decision he took, but we are warmed by his humanity. As I contemplate the diaries, I have come to believe that the careful reading of them will bring the reader as close to knowing another person as is possible. I have also come to believe that every reader's experience with Arrington and his diaries will be different. Thank you for the opportunity of being able to share some of my thoughts regarding the editing of the Arrington Diaries. We know there are some questions. So. Would you say that Howard W. Hunter was chiefly responsible for moving Arrington into the position of church historian, capital C, capital H? That's a really interesting question. Um, uh, Joseph Hilding Smith was the LDS church historian for 40 plus years, 60 years. Uh, then when he was called as the uh, church president, Howard W. Hunter became the church historian. He was church historian for as long as uh, Joseph Fielding Smith was president and, and just a little bit after. And that's when, when Joseph Fielding Smith died and Harold B. Lee became president, um, Leonard Arrington was called as the church historian. People, some people think that Arrington was responsible for the opening of the LDS Church Archives. That's not the case. Arrington's calling as church historian did not give him authority over the church archives That was uh, and library. That was um, Don Schmidt, the church archivist. When Howard W. Hunter was the church historian, he opened the church archives. It's, it's really amazing just how open the archives was uh, during the last year or so of Joseph Fielding Smith, and especially during Howard W. Hunter. Um, they gave access to uh, the First Presidency letterpress books and to other First Presidency materials to non-LDS researchers mm. during those few years. In terms of uh, Howard W. Hunter's uh, influence in helping to arrange for Leonard Arrington's call as the church historian, I would go back farther than Howard W. Hunter and would go to um, N. Eldon Tanner. 
During the 60s, 66, 67, Arrington approached the First Presidency with an invitation that he had received from Alfred Knopf to write a general history of the church. And uh, the First Presidency was supportive, especially in Eldon Tanner. Uh, and Arrington said, I'll do this, but I want full access. And they said, okay, you can have full access. And, and so in Eldon Tanner, I think, was the primary mover for the decision that resulted in Leonard Arrington's appointment as the church historian. Enelin Tanner was very, very open about things. If you go back, President Tanner gave a talk at BYU, uh, at a BYU devotional, and also in general conference, where he outlined pretty explicitly the process that the 12 went through uh, to name the appoint to, to name uh, David O. McKay's successor, Joseph Fielding Smith, as the church president. It's so open. Uh, his discussion is so open that I wouldn't be surprised if today, uh, if, if, it were, if it were being published today for the first time, it wouldn't be altered significantly in some of its details. He goes into quite a bit of He's pretty explicit in, the, in describing the meetings of the Twelve when, when Joseph Fielding Smith was named the church president. But, but yes, Howard W. Hunter was a huge proponent of Leonard Arrington, but so was N. Eldon Tanner. When did Tanner die? Tanner died in the, does anybody remember, 75, 76, oh, 77, okay. something like that. He was, he was one of the last, he was a counselor to Spencer W. Kimball, and that's interesting because Spencer W. Kimball, this is unrelated to the Arrington diaries, but Many of you will remember under Spencer W. Kimball that Eldon Tanner and Marion G. Romney both became fairly infirm towards the end of their uh, uh, tenure in the First Presidency, but uh, Spencer W. Kimball did not release them. Yeah, there were four, there were three counselors. Yeah, they, he called um, Gordon B. Hinckley, I think, right. as a counselor to the First Presidency, and that probably stems from Spencer W. Kimball's experience during the latter years of... Uh, David O. McKay's first presidency, and when Joseph Fielding Smith became the president, the, the Joseph Fielding Smith first presidency did not retain Hubie Brown. And I think that that's why Spencer Kimball chose to make, keep them, those two counselors on, even though they couldn't function as, as counselors. Mm -hmm. We're uh, friends with uh, one of his associates, Ron Walker, mm -hmm. and uh, it seemed that Ron was working in Salt Lake, and then when Arrington was uh, changed and went down to BYU, Ron went with him. Was there just kind of a whole group, the whole department got up and, and moved yes, the south? Was, how, yeah. did, how did that happen? There, there, when Arrington became the church historian, they, they, it was during a time when the church had hired a couple of outside uh, management consultants to view the bureaucracy, the church bureaucracy administration, and they made they recommended some changes to that that the church accepted, uh, and so that that's why you have uh, the transition from the church historian's office to the uh, historical department, and within this historical department there were actually divisions, and Arrington was over the history division, and that was the group of people, the, the five or ten people who served throughout the length of that at 10 years, and then whoever was left at the end of that 10 years, they went with Arrington down to BYU to, to found and form the Joseph Fielding Smith Institute for Church History. Can you speak to how open the, was there a change in the openness of the 
of the archives as a result of that move? Uh, uh, probably about 1978, 77-78, um, the managing director of the church historical department, uh, let's see, originally it was Joseph Anderson, no, originally it was, I might be confused, I think that it was Alvin R. Dyer, was originally the managing director. That was the church's, that was the uh, general authority responsible for the uh, historical department. Uh, Alvin R. Dyer, just a couple of months in, had a stroke that left him incapacitated. And then they asked Joseph uh, Anderson, who had been the long time, many decades, secretary to the first presidency. And then in 1977, I think. Um, was that Homer Durham? The Homer Durham, thanks. Homer Durham was called. Uh, to serve as the managing director of the church historical department. At that point, things started to get tighter. There started to be more restrictions. And that's also the point when G. Homer Durham had always felt that a mistake had been made to call Arrington and to have him set apart a general conference as the church historian. Um, he thought that that should have been a general authority position. And so when he became the managing director of the historical department, he advocated for the redefinition of Leonard Arrington from church historian to the, manage, to the director of the history division of the church historical department. One of the questions that I was never able and still really am not able to answer about the Arrington years as church historian is how long was he church historian? He was called in early 1972. In about 1977 or 78, uh, there's a letter from, Arrington is informed that he is not the church historian anymore. Hmm. He is the manager of the history division. And Arrington stops referring to himself as the church historian. Tellingly, he does not correct people who introduce him as the church historian, <laughs> but he himself no longer, in his diary, he, he, address, he says, I'm not, I'm, I'm okay with this, it doesn't matter to me, I don't care. Um, but he kind of did care. Um, because several years after that, he writes to the first presidency and he says, okay, am I the church historian or not? And he gets a letter back from Gordon B. Hinckley, who's in, who's, who is, I think at this point, a counselor in the first presidency. And the letter said, the letter's a little abrupt, and it says, as you know, back in 77 or 78, you were told that you were not the church historian. And that was the end of it, as far as Arrington was concerned. Um, so... If you go to the church history library, they have on the, the, the ground, the, the basement floor, they have a hallway where they have pictures of the church historians and things like that. And Arrington's picture is there. And the length of his tenure is given as 1972 to 1982. The church historian's office also released a pamphlet, which was a history of the office of church historian. He's identified as the church historian from 1972 to 1982. I think the reason for that is that G. Homer Durham was no, not set apart as the church historian until 1982. When, when the transition of the, from, of the uh, history division from Salt Lake down to BYU as the Joseph Fielding Smith Institute was finalized, that's when they moved and took up office in the Knight Mangan building. But I still don't know, I, I don't know what the answer is to that. I mean. I guess the public answer is he was the church historian for 10 years from 1972 to 1982.
Gary, uh, today it seems like the message that we get from the church leadership is that we are all in agreement on every everything that is announced. It, it, it was a revelation and we all agreed to it. We know from history that that has not always been the case and we know from common sense that it's not the case today either. Were, is there anything in the Arrington papers that kind of talks about things that he was aware of where there were disagreements that were ultimately resolved one way or the other, or does he not get into that? Uh, it's one of the frustrations that he expresses in his diaries is, is that um, just because a policy is announced doesn't mean that everybody is on board with it. When he was called as the church historian, uh, he was specifically commissioned to write good scholarly history. And he assumed that everybody was behind that. He was surprised. No, that's that's saying it too gently. He was he was shocked and disappointed to find out that not everybody was behind that, and those and some of those people who weren't behind it were actually working against it because they thought that that was uh, the wrong decision to have made. So he he yeah, it's disappointing to him to find out that you know it's not ever just just because the first presidency announces a decision doesn't mean that. Everybody, but it's unanimous. Yeah, yeah, and especially that um, th there might be some unanimity expressed publicly, but privately where it mattered, it's you know, it's not. I've got a follow-up that's related to that. Um, in his autobiography, someplace which I read a dozen years ago, so I'm a little rusty on this, but someplace toward the end he makes some comments and observations and even you might say a critique of church governance mm -hmm. and the nub of what he saw as the problem was sort of the what had developed as the requirement of unanimity mm -hmm. and the fact that and that because of that quote-unquote requirement that and the one of the, that letter, that thing that mm -hmm. you read, kind of seems to mm -hmm. relate to that. That it, um, well, it, it just made it inefficient. Uh, they they had a hard time, you know, coming to conclusions. It made it possible for one apostle to halt any particular program or initiative or this or that you know if they weren't on board then it didn't go and apologies if I'm not remembering it exactly right but I think that was the nub of what he said in in uh, his autobiography other thoughts in the uh, in the diaries that relate to that kind of a problem well he had I suspect that there were several nubs in the, you know that, that bugged him about the way that the church was organized or the way the decisions were made. It, it, it bothered him that Spencer W. Kimball did not publicly correct misrepresentations of what they were doing in the history division. Uh, it, 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 you know, and, and he recognized that, that you know, you have your temperament and, and you have to deal with that and some people are averse to conflict yeah. and he saw Spencer W. Kimball as being 
averse to conflict, and other people not at all being averse to conflict. <laughs> and usually those people, you know, they, they... They're the squeaky wheel. They were squeaky wheels, but there were also other people who were afraid to confront the squeaky wheels. And so the squeaky <coughs> wheels not only made noise, but they sometimes drove the vehicle. The engine. Yeah, yeah, and that, that, that bugged him. Would that be someone with the initials of BKP? Uh, <laughs> or, or anyway, yeah, and so, so he was, so, so Elder Packer was one of them, but he, this is kind of interesting to me. Um, Ezra Dab Benson and Marky Peterson, he saw yes. as more critical, more uh, opposed to what they were trying to do than Boyd K. Packer. Although Boyd K. Packer, if you read the diaries, he, Boyd K. Packer wrote a long letter about uh, Dean Jesse's edition of Brigham Young's letters to his sons, that he didn't like the fact that, that they did not redact material regarding Brigham Young's use of tobacco, and there was something else in there that I think <coughs> bothered them. It's interesting to me that Arrington uh, believed with reason that one of the, their strongest advocates was Bruce R. McConkie. Really? He really liked he liked Bruce R. McConkie as, <coughs> as far as, as long as Bruce R. McConkie was defending the work of the history division. And Bruce R. McConkie was interested in history and he liked history. And you read the diaries and, and Bruce R. McConkie is, seems to be an advocate for more openness than people might give him credit for. So, um, so Arrington understood the human side of the church as well as anybody, right? Uh, both historically yeah. and then through his experience. But he, he was a real believer, too, right? He I was, mean, yeah. And, and he believed in the founding narrative. He believed in, I mean, so can you talk a little bit about his sure. theology? And, and sure. How, how did he think that God worked in the world? Arrington had, Arrington's, <laughs> Arrington's relationship with the church, in one word, was complicated. But not in a, not, not as we might see it. Um, in his autobiography, um, Adventures of a Church Historian, he talks about two or three very special spiritual experiences that he experienced that to him trumped everything else, all rational thought, um, everything. He had experiences with something transcendent that he understood to be God. And that's, that's really when it came, when push came to shove, that's what he came back to. Um, Were these boyhood experiences? Or? No, these would have been late at college, specifically in college, yeah. Um, now, having said that, that's not to say that Arrington didn't have concerns or even criticisms about some things. He was not a big fan of the temple. And he talks about this in his diary. There were aspects of the temple, which aren't there anymore, that bothered him a lot and made it less than a positive experience for him. Um, his view, I'm not really sure where he stands on the Book of Mormon. I mean, it sounds like he did believe the Book of Mormon as actual ancient history, or at least there's a core of actual ancient history in the Book of Mormon. But he also said it doesn't make any difference, it doesn't bother me if the Book of Mormon, if we have a more mythic approach to the Book of Mormon. He, he insists that that did not bother him. You could still believe and not believe it was, it was uh, Literal. literally ancient history. Um, his daughter told me something that I didn't find in the diaries and didn't find any place else, but she told me that Arrington did not believe in a personal devil. Hmm. I never, he doesn't really talk about his belief in, in Satan, but she did tell me 
that he did not have. He did not believe that there were devils enticing each of us personally to, to sin or whatever. Does Pat, does that kind of, I mean, he, he, he is a, he, it is a mistake to think that Arrington was not a believer. He was very much. And, and did he think that God was, what, what did he think about God's role in directing the contemporary church? Because he, he saw these leaders. He saw their the, wards. The way the decisions were made, <laughs> yeah. right? Where did you see God? That's a really good question. Yeah. I'm not sure. I mean, he would, he would have to think that God was not behind every decision. Yeah. He would have to think that God sets things in motion. And then people are responsible for doing the best they can, based on all these other factors. And and he undoubtedly thought that they made mistakes. That you know that they made they made a mistake with the history division, not not allowing them to do what they wanted to do. Um, my guess is that today he might think that time has proven him correct on on you know the value of good, honest scholarly history. What about the fact that he lived through the era when blacks were denied the priesthood and then given the priesthood? Does he comment on that at all? Um, if you've read Greg Prince's biography, I think that's one of the areas where Prince criticizes Arrington, that he was not more, he was not a stronger advocate or opponent of the church's policy. Arrington doesn't talk about mm -hmm. the church's, his diaries, not until June of 1978. And then he really gets invested in trying to document the history of this particular development. And the diary is kind of interesting at that point because he is, he is indiscriminate in the information that he gathers and collects into his diary. Uh, and some of it is just you know all the crazy stuff, the rumors and things that were circulating at that time about what had happened. He felt it was important to document that and, and that future historians would be able to make sense of it and decide, you know, this is what happened, and this isn't what happened. This was just a story that was told for whatever reason. But he, he I didn't find Aaron. It wasn't a big issue for him. It's interesting, though. He, um, you know, he went to school in Chapel Hill, and his, his uh, yeah, Grace, uh, I think, had, uh, there might have been an African-American <coughs> maid in, the, in her house, and... Arrington insists in his diary that he was not racist. He, he did not know racism. That was never a factor for him. I don't know if that was true sometimes we're, you know, blinded by our own culture Virgin. and things. Yeah. I think you said that there, that, whether, that there was an account, a minutes or an account of the uh, meeting where the president, the choice of Joseph F. Mm -hmm. Smith for president, mm -hmm. and, and that it was published? Is that what you said? Um, Enelin Tanner talked about the process. He, he didn't give minutes, so he described but he it. did describe it. And he describes it, in, you know, he talks about going into the, uh, into the 12's room in the Salt Temple, uh, changing clothes, putting on your, your temple clothes, going through the, the uh, prayer circle, uh, taking off your clothes, putting on your regular business clothes, meeting, and things like that. And I just, where, given the sense of, that? that was in a talk that he gave first at a BYU devotional, and then in church, in uh, uh, general conference. And then you said you think that wouldn't be allowed to be described I, I just, now? They're really sensitive about the temple. Oh. And I think that they would rewrite some events oh. so as not to make it quite so explicit. Uh -huh. right. He um, obviously had a sense of uh, who were the good guys and the bad guys uh, around him and uh, in his... Uh, 
difficult period after being called a church historian. Um, and you mentioned some um, that were his detractors. Um, I, I, it seems to me that um, he would have gotten, he probably know, knows, he probably knew too that he would have gotten more support from President Kimball if President Kimball's health hadn't taken such a bad turn not long after uh, Arrington was called. Um, and uh, with uh, President Benson then waiting in the wings, uh, it was a difficult time for, for both of them. But one of the uh, one of the personalities you haven't mentioned, I'd like if you could tell me what comes across about um, President Hinckley as a um, supporter, uh, detractor, um, helper. Um. The impression that I have is that is that Arrington viewed President Hinckley the same way that he did G. Homer Durham. That is, initially, he thought that they were advocates of history. And then it became apparent to him that uh, it's not that they weren't not advocates of history, it's just that they were advocates of other things that sometimes pushed history to the back. So I think that he was, uh, I think that he was disappointed in how that developed. Well, they, uh, and that, that's kind of too bad that, uh, that President Hinckley came across that way because I think President Hinckley is largely responsible for the uh, transparency that opened up afterward, mm -hmm. especially with the appointment of uh, Mike Otterson as the uh, chief public affairs person. Mm -hmm. The two of them uh, really are, I think, the most responsible for uh, the new transparency, not only in the church historical department, but in in the way they've dealt with the criticism of the church uh, all along. Mm -hmm. um, of course, it helped that by that time, um, President Benson was gone, and uh, President Peterson was gone, and some other antagonists were gone. Yeah. But it really, it really, uh, you know, points up the importance of of personalities, not just offices that they hold, but right. personalities and their own inclinations. Well, I think that in, in the case specifically with regards to Arrington and President Hinckley and G. Homer Durham, uh, Arrington knew that President Hinckley and G. Homer Durham were friends, and they had actually been missionary companions mm -hmm. together back in the 20s, 30s, something like that, and had been, they, they were fairly close. And Arrington knew that, so I think that he, I don't know if he read anything into that relationship, but it wouldn't surprise me if he, if yeah, um, he did. What uh, does the diary say about uh, the Mark Hoffman scandal? I was a little bit toward oh, the end wow. of yeah. his tenure, but what's he, what it, it, it took Arrington a long, long time yeah. to come to the realization that Mark Hoffman was a forger and a murderer and that they had all been duped. It, it, he, was, he wasn't alone. A lot of people, just right up until Hoffman confessed, you know, just couldn't conceive that that, that, that kind of a thing could be possible. And, and plus with Arrington, you know, I mean, his, Dean Jesse had authenticated some of those things, and Arrington was an advocate for 
for the people that he worked with, and it was just, it was a really hard, difficult situation. Arrington also downplayed uh, any, any negative repercussion that the Hoffman bombings and murders may have caused to church history. He, he, he felt that it wasn't that, you know, the Salamander letter wasn't that big of a deal. The other things, they're not that, they didn't reach it. We knew about this stuff already, as far as we're concerned, it didn't really uh, impact the, the, the story that we're narrating one way or the other. Mm. Uh-huh. Was Harrington looking over his shoulder or concerned about the potential for being excommunicated? I personally know that Arrington was, I had a class from Arrington when I was an undergraduate at BYU, and this would have been around 1977. And at one point in the class, he asked, he said, I hesitate to say anything because I'm worried that I'm being recorded. Really? Yeah. He said what? He said, I'm worried, I hesitate to say anything because I'm worried that I'm being recorded. I don't know if Harrington ever was recorded in a situation like that, but he was aware that uh, word could get back to people about what he was saying and that he wouldn't have an opportunity to to explain what he was saying or to provide context for what he was saying. So I, I do know that he had, he, he worried about that. I think in the early 90s that he was you know, maybe the seventh name or the sixth and he was concerned for a time. Well, he was very, Arrington you know, um, joked that when he published uh, Adventures of a Church Historian, he thought that he would be excommunicated for that. I, whenever I heard him say that, I thought that he was you know, he was, he was joking, you know. But after having read through the diaries, and especially some of the letters that he sent, I, I don't think he was. I think that he thought that he really risked some kind of discipline by being so honest about telling his own story. Can you comment on you and your group's relationship with the Arrington children? How was it? Was it cooperative? Was It, it was great. I, 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 I'm not really sure why Susan approached the Smith Pettit Foundation and me, except that I had been bugging her for <laughs> 10 plus years about, about possibly working out some arrangement to publish Levina Philly Anderson's history of Leonard Arrington, Doves and Serpents. Um, and so I think that when, I think Lance Owens, uh, who, I, I don't know how many of you know Lance Owens, I think he's an anesthesiologist. Uh, he wrote an article about Joseph Smith and Gnosticism that appeared in Dialogue maybe 20 or 30 years ago. He's been a long-time family friend, and I think he originally suggested, you know, the diaries are worth publishing. Uh, they're now open at USU. Why don't you explore the possibility with someplace like Smith Pettit? And so it was Susan who contacted Smith Pettit. And the Arrington family was great. Su- Susan was the primary agent for the Arrington family on this particular project, and she could not have been better to work with. She, she never... Uh, asked for anything to be uh, edited out or redacted. Um, some of it was hard for her. Uh, Arrington's workaholism was very hard on his wife, Grace, and, and, and Susan remembered how difficult that could be sometimes. So this, there were things that were hard for her during this process, but she was always. Uh, the Arringtons all were great. They, I had, couldn't have been better. Honest. So was Levina's book ever published? No, Levina's book, uh, Doves and Serpents, has not been published, but it is now open at the USU library. And you can see it there. The, the criticism that the Arrington family had about Levina's 
Doves and Serpents book is that it tells us more about Levina than it does about Leonard. I don't know if that's true, um, but that was the impression that that the kid, the children had about that particular book. That may have their their reading of the of Levina's work may have also been colored by the fact that Levina, as Levina was working on that, she lost her job. She was fired uh, from the Enzyme magazine. And they may have thought that somehow, if she was feeling embittered about that, maybe that found its way into uh, what she was talking what, about. What was, what was the title of the book she did? Doves and Serpents. Doves and Serpents. Uh -huh. uh, that was, it comes from uh, Harmless's, Do Harmless's Doves, but Wise's Serpents. It was a play on that. And it was so her. there's just one copy of the book at USU? Well, so, so there were copies were made when she, when she finished that in 83, maybe? Really? Something like that. Uh -huh. um, the, the copies were shared with Arrington's colleagues, and from that initial sharing of copies, mm -hmm. copies circulated <laughs> okay. kind of widely. So there are copies available out there, but the, the, the original copy uh, is at the USU library. Are the papers available because 20 years went by? Or yes, the restriction passed at, at the USU library, and they opened everything up. The, uh, when Arrington left Salt Lake for BYU, uh, the church history department, the historical department, made a microfilm copy of his diary up to that point. And Arrington placed a restriction that was longer on, on that on that copy than was on his papers at USU. I don't know if the families lifted that yet. They can if they want to. It makes sense that they would now that the diaries are generally available. Um, but for whatever reason, Arrington wanted the copy at the, at the church historical department restricted longer than the originals that he deposited. So, so what was the, the term, the period, uh, for the USU? Because we're just coming up on 20 years right now. No, it was shorter than that. It was Yeah, like, well, it sounds like it. Well, Arrington died in 99. Right. And I think... Was it 10? Maybe there was a 10 or... 12-year, 15-year oh, restrictions? Oh, just no, that can't be right, because we started in 2012. Yeah, right. So we're, it must have been 10 years. It was probably a 10-year restriction from his death oh. that, that, they, that he placed on the copy of the originals, the, the originals at USU. <laughs> As time went on and Arrington ran into um, opposition from this official and that official, can you say whether uh, Elder Hunter stuck up for him? Uh, Elder Hunter, yes, but it was privately. Uh, what Arrington talks about in his diaries is that the, the people who were uh, advocates for him would come and tell him about the job that he was doing, but they would not defend him in meaningful. Yeah. Or at least not as he thought they should defend him. So, yeah. It, it, uh, uh, President Hunter was an advocate for the kind of stuff that Hunter was doing. You may disagree, but I would say that both Hunter and Arrington were somewhat naive about putting him in that position. I just, you know, they should have seen it coming. <laughs> yeah. yeah, on the other hand, I don't know if we would be where we are today with church history if it hadn't been for that period of time, even though there was the backlash to it. Uh, and some people have said that, you know, it took longer to reach this because of what happened during the Arrington years. Who knows if that's true? I tend to think that it helped. 
Of course, the internet helped too. <laughs> <laughs> uh -huh. It's kind of an advertisement for signature books. Why don't you give us a taste of the David O. McKay book that's going to be coming out this year? So, signature. If you have a catalog, the the book that is currently at <coughs> press at Signature is the one volume edition abridgment of David O. McKay's Presidential Diaries. So those mm. cover 51 to 71, basically. Uh, Harvard Heath, who was an archivist at BYU, has uh, prepared this edition of the Presidential Diaries of David O. McKay. I, if, if, for any of you who have read the Arrington Diaries, and if you like the disclosures and the honesty and the openness of the Arrington Diaries, I can guarantee that you will like the Presidential Diaries of David O. McKay. They're very open, they're very disclosing of the uh, bureaucracy and the administration. They were maintained by David O. McKay's personal secretary, Claire Middlemiss. Right. And, and the criticism, one of the criticisms of the David O. McKay presidential diaries is you don't always know if these are Claire Middlemiss's diaries or if these are David O. McKay's diaries. Um, I tend to think that David O. McKay, you see David O. McKay in these diaries pretty clearly up until the early to mid-60s. He suffers a stroke during that period, and I think that at that point, Jeez. the voice of Middlemiss becomes stronger in structuring the narrative of David O. McKay. Uh, but she includes <coughs> in, in the diaries both just regular diary entries that you would expect, but she also includes other things, like the minutes of the first presidency are in there often. Um, she would um, uh, listen onto telephone conversations and transcribe what was being said and then go home and render her shorthand into English. And those would be in there. Uh, they read kind of like plays. You have a name and then what they said and name and what they said. Um, sometimes these telephone conversations were recorded and then later transcribed. Um, you'll have reports of various apostles and submitted to David O. McKay, and also letters, official letters sometimes show in there. It is a very good book. How will the prints work stand? The diaries will give you, I think Prince probably touches on the major points in the okay. diaries. So, you know, the stuff about Mormon doctrine is there. The, the stuff about Ezra Tapp Benson's political right. uh, activities is there. Did Prince have but access to the diaries? Prince did have access. Okay. Prince was actually well, the first And he one. worked with Middlemiss in doing that book. Yeah, yeah he, he worked with uh, Middlemiss's nephew. Right, yeah. yeah. Well, thank you, Gary. Thank you for listening to the Dialogue Podcasts in honor of our 50th anniversary jubilee. If you enjoy listening, please consider becoming a subscriber to Dialogue by visiting dialoguejournal.com or supporting us with a donation. Thank you.